Today on Vitality Radio, the show is all about sleep, and I pray that you use this information contained here in this show to help you sleep better, but not to use this show itself to help you fall asleep, if you know what I mean, especially if you're driving. One of the most common questions I hear at Vitality Nutrition is, what do you have to help me sleep? In fact, I asked for topic suggestions on my new Vitality Radio Facebook listeners page, and the first suggestion was, do a show on sleep. Never will anyone take something more for granted than sleep until they can't sleep well anymore. I will say this, it's not an easy one-size-fits-all solution, but what I have found is that there are some pretty universal truths regarding sleep. On today's show, I'll go into all of them. Everything that I have learned over the years that has helped my clients sleep better, helped me sleep better, these are the things that I'm going to talk about on today's episode, from sleep hygiene to how much sleep we actually need at all the various ages and stages during our lives, to pharmaceutical options for sleep. Do they work? Are they safe? What are the potential dangers? To the natural options, what works, what doesn't. And I'll even talk about your circadian rhythms and something that most people have never heard of that I think is fascinating, known as the cortisol curve. Let's start with my favorite sleep scientist, Dr. Matthew Walker, the author of the best book I've ever read about sleep. It's called Why We Sleep, and I highly recommend that you read it. It's a pretty substantial book, but it's written in such a way that it's pretty easy to understand, and it is fascinating. I first heard Dr. Walker on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, episode 1109, and I would recommend you start there if you want to learn more about what Dr. Walker has to say. But I've prepared a series of quotes uh, by Dr. Walker regarding some of the most common questions about sleep, and I want to get into those right now. He says, human beings are the only species that deliberately deprive themselves of sleep for no apparent gain. Many people walk through their lives in an underslept state without even realizing it. Now, Walker is the director of the Center of Human Sleep Science at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, he's from Britain, I believe, uh, but uh, he works over here in the U.S. He points out that the lack of sleep defined as six hours or fewer can have serious consequences. Sleep deficiency is associated with problems in concentration, memory, and the immune system, and may even shorten lifespan. Every disease that is killing us is developed, or sorry, in developed nations has causal and significant links to a lack of sleep, he says. So, you know, that classic maxim that you may have heard, that you can sleep when you're dead? Well, it's actually mortally unwise advice from a very serious standpoint. He also had this to say on why you should, or what you should do if you can't sleep. You should not actually stay in bed for a very long time while you're awake because your brain is this remarkable associative device that quickly learns that bed is about being awake. So you should go to another room, a room that's dim. Just read a book, no screens, no phones, and only when you're sleepy, return to the bed. And that way your brain relearns the association with your bedroom being your sleep rather, or being about sleep rather than wakefulness. Another thing that people can do, he says, if you don't want to get up and go to a different room is actually just try meditating right there in bed. Being quite a stoic, hard-nosed scientist, I actually didn't really believe the data about meditation as a sleep aid, even though the data is very strong. And I started doing it myself, particularly when I was traveling with jet lag, and I found it to be very effective. It just quiets the mind and it dampens down what we call the fight or flight branch of the nervous system, which is one of the key features of insomnia. And that can really have some efficacious benefits too. So that's another solution if people would choose not to go to a different room. Dr. Walker also answered this on whether you can make up for a sleep deficit by sleeping longer on another day. 
He said, you're trying to sleep off a debt that you've lumbered your brain and body with during the week. And wouldn't it be lovely if sleep worked like that? Sadly, it does not. Sleep is not like the bank. So you can't accumulate a debt and then try and pay it off at a later point in time. And the reason is this. We know that if I were to deprive you of sleep for an entire night, he says, take away your eight hours. And then in the subsequent night, I give you all the sleep that you want. However much you wish to consume, you never get back all that you lost. You will sleep longer, but you will not ever achieve that full eight-hour repayment, as it were. So the brain has no capacity to get back the lost sleep that you've been lumbering it with during the week in terms of a debt. He answers this, which I love, on letting teenagers sleep on weekends. Parents will often pull the covers off their teenagers on weekends and say, it's daylight out, it's noon, you're wasting your day. And that's wrong for two reasons. It's not their fault. It's their biology that wants them to be asleep at that time. But it's more than that, because it also turns out that they are trying to sleep off a debt that we have actually saddled them with by the way by way of this incessant model of early school start times. We have to abandon that attitude, and we also have to change the educational practice as well. Boy, I could not agree with Dr. Walker more on that. Uh, you'll learn here in a moment how much sleep a teenager should have, and you'll recognize if you've got teenagers, that ain't happening uh, for most of them unless it is the weekend. Uh, on how the quantity and quality of sleep decreases with age, Dr. Walker says, the amount of sleep, the total amount of sleep that you get starts to decrease the older that you get. I think one of the myths out there is that we simply need less sleep as we age, and that's simply not true. In fact, we need just as much sleep in our 60s, 70s, and 80s as we do when, when, our, when we are in our 40s. It's simply that the brain is not capable of generating that sleep, which it still needs and the body still needs. So total amount of sleep actually decreases. We also know that the continuity of sleep also starts to fall apart. Sleep becomes much more fragmented. There are many more awakenings throughout the night, pain, bathroom trips, etc. But we also know that it's not the quantity of sleep that changes with aging. It's also the quality of sleep. It seems to be particularly the deepest stage of sleep, something that we call non-rapid eye movement sleep or non-REM sleep, the very deepest stages of non-REM sleep. These are selectively eroded by the aging process. By the time you're in your 50s, you're perhaps, you've perhaps lost almost 40 to 50% of that deep sleep you were having. For example, when you were a teenager, um, you were getting... Or sorry, you were having, for example, when you were a teenager. So by the time you're in your 50s, you're getting maybe half as much of that deep restorative sleep. By age 70, he says, you may have lost 90% of that deep sleep. And then he talks about using sleeping pills like Ambien to sleep. Unfortunately, the current set or classes of sleeping pills that we have do not produce naturalistic sleep. So they are all a broad set of chemicals that we call the sedative hypnotics. And sedation is not sleep. It's very different. It doesn't give you the restorative natural benefits of sleep. If you look at the electrical signature of sleep that you have when you're taking those medications, it's not the same as a normal night of sleep. And then he talks about a couple of things that we do to ourselves in America, well, across the world, but especially in America so much, Caffeine. First and most obvious for some people is that it stops you from falling asleep. Much of many of us are taking caffeine specifically so we don't fall asleep, you know, at the wheel or at our job or whatever. Some people, however, say, you know, I can have a cup of coffee after dinner and I fall asleep just fine. So I'm not one of those people that is sensitive to caffeine. And that's quite dangerous, according to Dr. Walker, because we also know that even if you can fall asleep, the depth of sleep that you have when caffeine is swirling around in your brain is not going to be as deep anymore. So people may wake up the next morning, they'll feel unrefreshed, they'll start to reach for the coffee pot earlier, they'll drink more caffeine, never having realized that it was the cup of coffee last night that has left you feeling underslept because they didn't wake up during the night, they didn't have problems falling asleep, 
but the caffeine can still have deleterious impact. Now, it's important to understand, too, that caffeine, while it wears off relatively quickly, the big high or rush that you get actually has about a 12-hour half-life in the body. So if you're drinking a cup of coffee or a monster energy drink or whatever at noon, it, half of that caffeine is still circulating at midnight. So even though you may be able to fall asleep, you're probably not sleeping well. And lastly, he talks about how alcohol affects sleep. Alcohol is a sedative drug. And what you're doing there is simply knocking yourself out. You are removing consciousness quickly from the brain by way of having alcohol. But you're not putting yourself into naturalistic sleep there either. The other issue is that alcohol will fragment your sleep. It will litter it and punctuate it with many more awakenings throughout the night, so short that you tend to not even remember them. So once again, you're not quite aware of how bad your sleep was when you had alcohol in the system. The final aspect of alcohol is that it is, not, it is very good at blocking your REM sleep or your dream sleep, which is critical for aspects of mental health within the brain and emotional restitution too. So alcohol is a very misunderstood drug when it comes to sleep. Not helpful, he says. Okay, so there's some amazing, I think, really valuable information from Dr. Matthew Walker. Like I said, if you really want to dig into this topic, I would suggest very, very highly um, his book called Why We Sleep. Now, before we continue, I'm going to get on to the rest of uh, the sleep uh, talk, and this entire show is about sleep. I want to remind those of you listening, especially if you're new to the show, the best way to ask questions, uh, if you have any questions that come up while you're listening to Vitality Radio, uh, is to give us a call, 801-292-6662. That's Vitality Nutrition in Bountiful, Utah. If you're local, we'd love to have you come pay us a visit. If you're not, we still love to take your phone calls and help you over the phone at 801-292-6662. You can also jump online, vitalitynutrition.com. Uh, you can chat with us there. You can order products. You can check out what we have in store at vitalitynutrition.com. And if you really want to dig in, become one of the growing community of Vitality listeners on Facebook. We're well past 260 listeners now, uh, aiming for 300 very, very soon that have joined this group. And I'll tell you, the people in the group love being in the group. I get so much positive feedback in there because it's this great community that helps each other uh, answer tough questions about health and you know, there's nothing better than having a sounding board when you're trying to figure out, okay, what can I do for this or that? And I'm in there every single day uh, reading comments and making comments myself as well. Okay, so l before I get any further into sleep and and my portion of the show is, is what I mostly shared with you there before was Dr. Matthew Walker, who I absolutely uh, admire so much for the research he's done. Um, I want to go through a few things. First off, I think how much sleep we need is maybe a little misunderstood by many people, particularly at different ages. Now, it's important to understand that I think most American adults know that you need to have around seven or eight hours. That's kind of a standard thing. Um, according to the CDC, who I disagree with more often than I agree with, uh, but I think they've actually got these numbers pretty well mapped out, and they certainly... Uh, match up pretty well with Dr. Uh, Walker. Uh, adults need at least seven hours. Uh, Dr. Walker says you really need to shoot for eight. There are certain types that do fine on just seven, but he says almost everybody else needs eight or maybe even nine. Uh, that's from 18 to 60 years old. We get a little older, 61 to 64, seven to nine hours. And then interestingly, seven to eight hours at 65 plus. So it kind of reverts back. But as children, uh, you know, we know that newborns and infants take a lot of sleep, 14 to 17 hours uh, for newborns, 12 to 16 hours, including naps for infants, 11 to 14 hours for toddlers. That also includes nap time. Preschoolers, even 10 to 13 hours, including naps. But school-age children, 6 to 12 years old, Nine hours is considered a minimum and up to 12 hours. So nine to 12 hours, ask yourself if your six to 12-year-olds are getting that much sleep. Teenagers, nine to 10 hours. That's 13 to 18. And I've actually read a couple of places that with teens, especially uh, teens that are 
um, heavily involved, we'll say, in you know, sports, after-school activities, things like that. Maybe they have a job as well as school. It's actually closer to that 10 or even 11-hour mark that is needed. So try not to deprive your teens of their sleep. It's a pretty important part of their health, a vitally important part. Now, let's talk about if if you're someone who has a hard time sleeping, you've tried different things, maybe you've tried melatonin, maybe you've tried tryptophan or valerian root or something like that. I'm going to talk about natural remedies towards the very end of the show, but maybe you're using a pharmaceutical or you've tried a pharmaceutical, whether it be an over-the-counter drug like uh, Z-Quil or NyQuil or uh, Unisom or Benadryl or something like that, or maybe it's a pharmaceutical that's prescribed, uh, such as uh, Florazepam or Temazepam or Lorazepam, uh, Xanax, Clonopin, uh, Prosom, Halcyon, you know, those types of drugs. Did you know that all of those drugs that are prescribed by your doctor, uh, all of the AMs or PAMs, they are all benzodiazepines. Now, benzodiazepines, I've talked about on Vitality Radio before, but I'm going to give you a quick refresher as to why that is a last, last, last option when it comes to sleep, in my opinion. Okay, so the risk of addiction with benzos. It's, it is a DEA-controlled st- substance, a Class IV uh, s- uh, controlled substance. Dependence may occur in just a few weeks, and I will say that that is what the CDC says, but there is excellent evidence that dependence can happen literally within the first few doses of a benzo- benzodiazepine. You have 10 times the risk of death if used by those who are also taking opioids. So if you're on any kind of uh, opioid pain medicine and you're looking for something to help with sleep and your doctor prescribes you lorazepam or uh, Xanax or something like that, you increase your risk of death by 10 times when you're taking the two together. Withdrawals. Even on a slow taper from benzos, 28% have withdrawal symptoms and 21% relapse to benzo reuse debilitating withdrawals can last months or years. I know individuals who have struggled with it for over decades, decades, trying to withdraw off of benzos. Safety, 80% greater risk of hip fracture after just or less than just one month. 80% greater risk of hip fracture. And that has to do actually pretty simply with just being a little more wobbly when you're on a benzo. Uh, overuse. Guidelines say that you should use them for a max of 28 days, but in practice, they're often prescribed for months or years. You know, one of the things that drives me crazy when I talk to my clients who are on pharmaceutical prescriptions is when they say, yeah, my doctor put me on this for acid reflux or that for insomnia or this for, you know, whatever it was. And they stop complaining about the problem and their doctor doesn't ever revisit the pharmaceutical to decide if Maybe they've been on it too long. Benzos were never designed, ever, or even approved for over 28 days of continuous use. Also, you have an 18-time increase in benzo overdose deaths over the last 16 years in this country. Eight times increase in benzo overdose deaths. It's happening more and more frequently. I call it the silent um the silent pandemic, uh, or epidemic, sorry, pandemic. Yeah, that's been on my mind. The silent epidemic, whereas the opioid epidemic is out there in the open and people are aware, benzos, not so much. Also, benzos consistently induce amnesia and other cognitive impairment. The higher the dose, the higher the impairment. And the last one is a two times greater risk of suicidal behavior. So benzodiazepines for sleep one of the most commonly, one of the most common things I see with my clients that come and asking me for help with sleep is that they're already on a benzo that their doctor prescribed to them. Please, 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 if you don't get anything else out of this show, check what your doctor is prescribing. Figure out what class of drug it is and what the risks are before you just take the prescription. Okay, so that's benzos. What about Ambien, though? Ambien's not a benzo, right? Ambien is the most commonly prescribed sleep non-benzo sleep drug. But you know what? It isn't a benzo, but it's 
kind of a benzo. It's not in the same class, but it's still a Schedule Four controlled substance, meaning that it has a low potential for abuse, according to the DEA, and a low risk of dependence, neither of which have proven to be true. Despite this, many individuals use Ambien recreationally for its potential euphoric effects. Individuals who take Ambien for a longer period of time than the recommended 28 days uh, and find that they can misuse the drug very, very quickly and develop a dependency very, very quickly as well. In fact, it is now recognized that Ambien has a very similar potential for abuse and addiction as do benzos. So like I said, it's not a benzo, but it kind of is lumped in with the same thing. All right, so maybe you're not going to do a prescription drug for sleep, but you want to take something that's strong enough to knock you out. So you're over at the drugstore and you're looking at Benadryl or Unisom or Zequil. Well, the most common side effects in the short term are anxiety, dry mouth, excitability, increased heart rate, constipation, inability to urinate, blurry vision, nausea, dizziness, jitters, tightness in the chest, and weakness. Those are the short term. How about the long term? Withdrawals. Withdrawals meaning addiction, right? You can get addicted to these things where you can't sleep without them. And then when you go off of them, you have withdrawal symptoms. And in most cases, your sleep gets even worse. Severe anxiety, confusion, and dementia. There is some very compelling research that shows that long-term Benadryl use. Now, Benadryl is uh, diphenhydramine. Diphenhydramine is found in most over-the-counter sleep aids. Even if it's not called Benadryl, it's the same thing. It's an antihistamine that induces sleep. And, well, there's some really compelling research showing that it may be a cause, a cause, not just a factor in dementia in later years after long-term use. So also, in my opinion, a no-go for sleep. Now, would you want to take something like that occasionally for sleep? Yeah, maybe. You know, I've used Benadryl. There are very few drugs that I have in my house at all. I'm not a drug guy, as you probably know. It's vitamins, minerals, and herbs for me. I have Benadryl on hand. Um, I have Benadryl on hand for a couple of reasons. One is severe allergic reaction. The Benefits of Benadryl can be very, very useful. And also, if there is someone who is really struggling with sleep, can't get there. Now, I don't use Benadryl this way anymore, but I have used it in the past before I found better methods. For the occasional night where I really needed to get to sleep, uh, I would use Benadryl occasionally. I've talked to uh, a couple of people who I trust who believe that short-term, once or twice here and there, not a big deal. And I think that that is the truth. It's more the long term that is concerning with Benadryl and those types of products. So that's why you want to get away from those. Oh, also, this is important, really, really important. Ambien, benzos, and over-the-counter sleep aids, none of them give restorative sleep. None of them match the electricity in the brain that's happening during regular naturalistic sleep, none of them. It is not the same thing. It is sedation. It is not sleep. And that is not the same. Okay. So now let's talk about something that I find to be truly fascinating when it comes to sleep. And that is a word you've all heard before, cortisol. It's a hormone, right? Most people know of it as our stress hormone. Cortisol, did you know, is not just a hormone that is kicked out during stress. In fact, I think the majority of people, when they hear the word cortisol, think the body has cortisol uh, in it or manufactures cortisol when I'm stressed out, and that's when it makes cortisol. Not true. Cortisol is actually an integral part of the circadian rhythm. Okay, and the circadian rhythm, you've heard of it. It's that 24-hour clock that we all work on. So we're going to talk about the cortisol curve towards the end of this conversation, but let's talk about circadian rhythms generally first. We are biological beings living in a modern world where food and light are readily available all hours of the night. However, the daily pattern of light and dark, that is the circadian rhythm, still governs our behavior and physiology. So even though we can eat at midnight, It doesn't mean that our circadian clock is going to appreciate it, right? And even though we can have the 
big screen on and the light on overhead and an iPad in our face at 10 o'clock at night doesn't mean that we should or that it's going to benefit our circadian rhythms. Operating against our natural biological rhythms results in several chronic disease processes that undermine physical and mental health because we are meant to be awake, active, and consuming food during the daylight hours or during the active phase of the circadian rhythm, and we are simply made to sleep when it is dark. So the purpose of the circadian rhythm. The circadian rhythm results from the synchronization of biological events with environmental cues and occurs in, a, in living organisms in an approximate 24-hour cycle. Now, I found this to be very fascinating as I was researching this. These rhythms are entrained by environmental stimuli referred to as Zeitgebers. Zeitgebers is a German word for time givers. I really, really like that. So Zeitgebers are these external stimuli uh, that we can eat, that, that are naturally provided for us, such as the sun rising in the morning and the sun going down at night, or stimuli that we create uh, for ourselves, you know, watching the TV late at night, getting that blue light that is similar to the sunlight, and so on. These Zeit, or sorry, Zeitgebers, or time givers, they are critical to basically telling our clock, you know, you're on schedule or you're not. Essentially adjusting the clock up and down, back and forth, to where we're working in the right portion of that 24-hour circadian rhythm. They, these Zeitgebers can be photic, meaning that they are related to light, or non-photic, uh, such as temperature. When it cools off at night, that is one of the time givers that teaches our body that it's time to slow down and get ready for sleep. Food is something that teaches our body that we should be awake because we're up and digesting food. Activity, exercise, social cues, all of these matter. Uh, as stated by Dr. Timothy Monk in the journal Sleep, circadian rhythms are driven by endogenous processes, those are internal processes, and are self-sustaining and rely upon circadian time cues, these would be the Zeitgebers, to remain appropriately oriented to the individual's environment and desired routine. Now, I, I quoted that because I really thought that was important, the desired routine. We get to influence our circadian rhythm in a dramatic way, but there are some things that are beyond our ability to overcome, such as well, not completely beyond. We can get blackout curtains, for instance. I have blackout curtains in my bedroom uh, uh, because I want it to be very, very dark at night. But I'm learning that I want to open those up uh, earlier in the morning and let that sunlight in so I can let that Zeitgeber teach me and teach my biological or my circadian clock you know, what time it is and what I should be doing. But we have a desired routine. Some of us have to work later at night. Uh, some of us have to work night shifts. There are a variety of different things that can really be disruptive. And what I would say is, if you're in a position where you can't get sleep the way that you were meant to get sleep, you know, from, you know, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. type of a thing, if that's the case, then what I'm about to talk about with circadian rhythm means even more to you. So remember, operating against our natural biological rhythms results in several chronic disease processes that undermine physical and mental health. So we really have to recognize that this circadian rhythm and operating within an appropriate circadian rhythm is the most ideal way to achieve optimal wellness. The very strongest Zeitgeber... Uh, or time giver, is light. The cycles of light and dark that mark the passage of a single day signal the body's internal clocks to perform specific functions in a timed and synchronized manner to optimize overall function. You know, Einstein once mused that the only reason for time is so that everything doesn't happen all at once. Your body is on your side. It wants to serve you, and you may not be helping. Now, 
I want it very clear, very, very clear that I am my own worst enemy when it comes to sleep. I push myself too late into the evening. I then want to try to sleep in in the morning, but I am constantly battling my own circadian rhythm. I tend to have my phone on too late at night in my eyes. There's a lot of things that I don't do optimally when it comes to sleep, and I'm I'm frankly working on it, really trying to retrain myself, get a little bit of willpower going, and get my sleep cycle where it should be. Case in point, it is 9.34 p.m. as I am recording this. My goal tonight is to be in bed asleep by 10.30. I'm halfway through the show. I'm not confident that will happen. You get the point. I'm sure we're all kind of in this together when it comes to sleep. But if we recognize that we have a ton of control over this, I think it gives a lot more, uh, what's the word? Well, it gives us a feeling of hope, maybe, that we can get a great night's sleep on a consistent basis if we get control of these rhythms. So let's talk about how to do that. A couple of simple and important tips that I have found that are extremely helpful that are clinically proven in humans are these. Uh, I talked about this actually in our my 10 uh, free or cheap things you can do to improve your health right now, episode two of that show, uh, where Dr. Andrew Huberman uh, talks about viewing low angle light, meaning you're looking to the east when the sun is rising or has just risen, and you're viewing, looking towards the sun, maybe not peering directly into it, but looking towards the sun when it's at that low angle. That tells your body, hey, the sun is coming up. It is morning. And according to Dr. Huberman, it sets a clock right then for 16 hours from that time that it is now time to wind down. It is bedtime and time to go to sleep. And if you can do that on a regular basis, uh, Dr. Huberman says even for just a couple of weeks, every morning, getting that low angle light, you can start to reset your circadian rhythm just by doing that. But you can also upset that by then at 10 o'clock at night, when it should be time to wind down, having the TV on, uh, especially if you're not using some sort of like blue block uh, sunglasses or something like that, you really need to avoid that bright light, get dimmers, uh, do something to keep the light level low before you go to bed at night. Those two things will play a major role in resetting your clock. Also, don't fight sleep. Don't be Jared in this case. Uh, unless you absolutely have to, if you're tired at night and it's a reasonable time to go to sleep, go to sleep. Don't fight it. Go to bed at the same time every night or very, very close to the same time. That is very important. Um, also, getting up at close to the same time every single morning, setting an actual routine, teaching your body, this is how we do it. We go to sleep at this time. We wake up at this time. All of that matters in a big way. Also, eating plays a major role. Eat on a regular schedule. Ideally, most of the research that um, I have read would suggest that we're ideally doing an 8 to 10 hour feeding window, as they would call it. Uh, this is a restricted eating window or intermittent fasting. Um, 8 to 10 hours of eating, not 12 to 15 hours of eating. So what that means is that if you're, if you're not familiar with intermittent fasting, if you're on a 10-hour window, for instance, you might start eating at 10 a.m. in the morning instead of you know 8 a.m. or 7 a.m., and you stop eating at 8 p.m., a couple hours before you're ready to go to bed. That 10-hour window, according to the research, not only is really, really great for your body, for metabolism, a variety of other things, but it also helps to set the clock. You're basically teaching your body, this is when I eat, this is when I sleep, and all of that plays a role. So between 8 to 10 hours of an eating window and not eating within at least two hours of bedtime. That two hours before bed is a big deal because if your body is trying to digest food, it is not able to relax. You're going to not be in a uh, state of sleepiness 
when your body is churning out energy to digest your last meal. Uh, and like I said, uh, getting some blue blockers uh, for your uh, glasses or downloading something on your iPad or your TV or your computer screen or something like that that dims the blue light, that is very, very helpful as well. Those are the best sleep hygiene tips that I know. Oh, and also make sure you're sleeping in a dark room and that you are keeping it a little cool. Not everybody likes to hear that. One person I can think of in particular is not going to want to hear that. But a cool room will induce better sleep. Okay, so now let's talk about that cortisol curve. Cortisol produced by the adrenal cortex, okay? We think about it as a stress hormone. It's produced in the adrenal glands when we're stressed out. That is true. But there is a natural curve to cortisol that it is directly tied to our circadian rhythm. Cortisol should be at its highest at about 3 uh, a.m., about 3 a.m., or sorry, 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 at its lowest at about 3 a.m. and start to spike up to its peak of about 8 a.m. because cortisol is also one of what I call the alarm clock hormones. It helps us wake up. So that stress hormone, quote-unquote stress hormone, is also a really great hormone to have at a higher level in the daytime, in the early morning hours, because it wakes us up. And that's good. It gives us more energy. It helps us get through our day. As we do, I'll say, three main things, as we have stress in our lives, not all of it is self-inflicted, but a lot of it is. I think we can all be honest about that. There are things that stress us out that maybe we don't need to allow to stress us out. And there are things that stress us out that are, you know, realistic things that would stress anybody out. But a lot of the stress that we have is um, comes from within. Other stresses that we have uh, come from other areas. And regardless, if we are under chronic stress, our circadian rhythm and our, our uh, cortisol curve will unfortunately get confused. And the reason this is, is because if you look on a 24-hour curve of cortisol, like I said, it's spiking. It's at its lowest level at about 3 a.m. starts to spike very, very quickly between 3 and 8, just that five-hour level. And then it's slowly dropping the rest of the day all the way until 3 a.m. that next night. We want low cortisol at night. We want higher cortisol during the morning. But with significant stress, with constant stimulation, this is not just caffeine, but I would say caffeine is the biggest source of this constant stimulation that we do to ourselves. Um, with constant stimulation of caffeine, we are confusing the body into knowing when it's supposed to have high cortisol, when it's supposed to have low cortisol. Stress does that as well. And of course, poor sleep habits do that as well. And what can eventually result is a shift in the cortisol curve. Now, perhaps your cortisol is peaking at not 8 a.m., but 2 p.m., and if it's peaking at 2 p.m., that means it's going to be significantly higher at 10 p.m. than it would otherwise be, which would make it harder to fall asleep. So if you're finding a really difficult time falling asleep, especially if your brain is just kind of constantly cycling, odds are your cortisol curve has been shifted a little bit and your circadian rhythm is therefore off. Now, it could be just that you've had a very stressful day. And you've carried a lot of cortisol to bed with you from the stress of the day. But if it's happening chronically and every night you're really struggling to fall asleep, it could be your cortisol curve. What if you're waking up at 3 in the morning or 4 in the morning? Remember, your cortisol should be at its lowest point at 3 in the morning. You're waking up at 3 in the morning? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. In Chinese medicine, we are told that from about 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. is when our liver wants to do most of its detoxification. And I believe that that is the case. And so if we're waking up at 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, it could actually be liver toxicity. Your body's having a hard time detoxifying the liver. So a good liver cleanse uh, is not a bad idea if you're struggling there. But if you're waking up at 1 or 2 or 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, something like that, you can't fall back to sleep, especially because your brain won't shut off. You're thinking of all the stuff that happened yesterday that stressed you out, what you've got to do today that's stressing you out, whatever it is. 
that is a great indication to me that your cortisol curve has shifted and your cortisol is firing at the wrong time. So then what do we do about that? Well, I already addressed half of it with what I talked about with the light and the, the restricted eating and all of that stuff. All of that plays a role in that cortisol curve because the cortisol curve is directly tied within the circadian rhythm. All right, so what else can we do to address cortisol? Well, that was the question I had years ago. Years ago, I'm thinking probably a decade or so, I did a show on Vitality Radio way before it was a podcast, just on local radio. And it's when I discovered the cortisol curve, I was digging into sleep and I was trying to understand some things that I hadn't figured out yet. And I dug up this cortisol curve thing and it blew my mind. I was like, whoa, this makes so much sense. In fact, I think it was more than, it's more than a decade. This is probably 12 12 years ago now, now that I think about it, because I had just released a product uh, for another company I was working with called Anxiety Free, and I had been digging into cortisol a lot for that product, and I think that's actually what brought me to the cortisol curve, and when I discovered the cortisol curve and the possible shifting in the cortisol curve, which up till then I did not know was possible, then I was mind blown saying, whoa. Maybe that's why when I recommend melatonin or tryptophan or valerian or so many other things to people for sleep, and it works great for some people, it does nothing for other people. Maybe their problem isn't that they can't, they're physically calm down. Their problem is that their circadian rhythm and their cortisol curve is way off. And since that time, 12 years ago, what I've recognized is that most of the people that I talk to that have sleep issues I believe, have a cortisol curve issue. I think it's the most common problem that people are dealing with. This is not anybody's opinion but mine, but I think I'm on to something with this. And I shouldn't say it's not anybody's opinion. I've read other people that have said this, but it makes perfect sense to me. And yet we're not addressing cortisol for sleep hardly ever. Hardly ever. So we really need to look at that. So when I went to the drawing board years ago to develop a formula for sleep, I knew I was up against a really, really tough kind of scenario. And that is that every sleep aid I'd ever sold up to that point of Vitality Nutrition worked great for some people and not great for half the rest of the people or two thirds of the rest of the people. I had yet to find a product that was universally super, super effective. So I started recommending anxiety free. This formula I developed for Ridgecrest Herbals years ago, still on the market, still a great product, but it wasn't a sleep aid and it was never designed to be a sleep aid. And yet I recommended it and people started sleeping better. And then I knew, okay, now I've got a little bit of, you know, at least anecdotal evidence to go along with this scientific proof that the cortisol curve is a thing. And then I went out to develop vital sleep. So vital sleep is, is very much new and improved. It just came out again a few months ago. It was gone for two years due to issues with COVID and product availability. We couldn't get vital sleep, but it's back. And it's stronger and better than it ever was before. And it was awesome before. For about three years, it was one of our very, very best-selling products at Vitality Nutrition. And now it's right back up there again. I want to break it down for you and why I think it works so well. So there's the first two ingredients are 5-HTP, which is 5-hydroxytryptophan. 5-hydroxytryptophan uh, makes serotonin, converts to serotonin in the body. We think of serotonin primarily as a depression thing, but if you've listened to my shows on SSRIs and antidepressants, you'll know that I don't believe that serotonin is really that big of a factor in depression. But what it is a factor in is it is a natural precursor to melatonin. And serotonin and melatonin seem to work better together uh, than they do independently. So with this formula, I've put melatonin and 5-HTP so that we've got the precursor to melatonin and melatonin to help with sleep. But the superstar of this formula is sensoril ashwagandha. Sensoril ashwagandha is a very specific form of ashwagandha. It's the only one that I'm aware of that's been studied that has clinically proven to reduce blood cortisol levels by about 24 to 26%. 
that is dramatic. So if your cortisol curve is way up high at 10 o'clock at night and it needs to drop down, I can think of nothing outside of those Zeitgebers that I talked about, those time givers that you can control the lifestyle things. I can't think of anything else that is more likely to drop your cortisol efficiently than is ashwagandha and particularly, excuse me, particularly sensorial ashwagandha. It plays a vital role in that, and it works incredibly well. If you are stressing out, if that seems to be your thing with sleep, you can't fall asleep or you can't stay asleep because your brain won't turn off because you feel very stressed, Sensoril is a major, major player for you that you definitely need to consider. The other ingredients in the formula all wrap around something known as GABA. G-A-B-A. And yet there is no GABA in the formula. The reason for that is... GABA as a supplement doesn't set well with a lot of people. They don't feel good on it as a supplement, but we all make GABA in our brain. GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. Our body literally produces it when there's too much going on inside our brains. It makes GABA to calm that down. It inhibits uh, this heavy traffic of uh, neurons that is created under massive stress when we're in that fight or flight mode. But when we have a lot of stress and we have it consistently, we don't make enough GABA to keep up. So rather than putting GABA in the product, I've put 300 milligrams of L-theanine. Now L-theanine, if you listen to much Vitality Radio, you've heard me talk about theanine. I love it. I recommend it for things like ADD. I recommend it for anxiety and stress. I recommend it for uh, focus in school. I recommend it for, I take it myself before I do shows like this so I can focus. All of those things. I love theanine. Why? Well, it helps your body make more GABA. That's the first thing. And it helps to bring what are called alpha brain waves. These are the same type of brain waves that we achieve when we're under a meditative state, which is why Dr. Walker said, stay in bed and meditate. That will bring GABA up and alpha brain waves up naturally, as will deep um, counted breathing can really, really help too. I didn't mention that earlier, but that's a really valuable tool as well. Also in the formula are three herbs, skullcap, passion flower. Both of these help the body to make more GABA. So we've got an amino acid that helps to make more GABA and two herbs that help to make more GABA. And then lemon balm, such an unsung hero, but I love lemon balm. It actually inhibits an enzyme that breaks GABA down called GABA transaminase. I always have a hard time saying that one. GABA transaminase. Lemon balm inhibits that, so it keeps GABA in the brain longer so that we can be more calm mentally. So again, if you have a racing mind, if you have a high level of stress, if you're relying on a lot of caffeine to stay awake during the day, if you wake up and your brain won't stop, if you're trying to go to sleep but your brain won't stop, any of those things, these ingredients have independently have shown every one of them clinically to be effective for sleep, but together they pack a real and true punch, and I absolutely love these these ingredients. Now, of course, very very uh, biased speaker right now because I formulated Vital Sleep. Uh, it's under my brand, Neurological uh, Intellectual Nutrition, my uh, brain health brand, and the Vital Sleep formula absolutely dynamite. I absolutely love it. I use it myself every single night. Don't forget though, in the last couple of minutes that we have, magnesium. It's in my Vital 5 for a reason and it is absolutely crucial. It is absolutely crucial to proper sleep. If you're not taking magnesium before you do Vital uh, vital Sleep, I would highly recommend getting on magnesium glycinate. The Vital 5 magnesium glycinate is my very favorite magnesium glycinate. Taking two to three of those before bed all by itself can help with sleep in a dramatic way. And then lastly, I'll say if you've tried all these other things, maybe you try Vital Sleep and it didn't work for you. 
The last thing that I've had really good success with and that I resort to myself still sometimes is CBD, uh, a higher dose of CBD with a smaller dose of THC. These are uh, also known as cannabis, uh, medical marijuana or recreational marijuana. Um, depending on your state's laws, there's a wide range of whether or not you can get this stuff. But in most states, it's available somehow. And we even have a formula called Reserve uh, from CV Sciences, which is not on our website because the state, all the state's laws are different. And so we can't put it on our website, but we can help you with it over the phone. You can call us at Vitality Nutrition, 801-292-6662. And if you're interested in the CBD-THC combination, call us and you can ask about that. And we'll explain how that can work too. If you struggle with sleep because of pain, then I find that CBD and THC as a combination works extremely well because it will help with the inflammation and the pain, and it will also help you to sleep. And interestingly enough, most of the research so far indicates that cannabis, CBD, THC, will help you get into a good natural state of sleep, unlike alcohol, unlike benzos, unlike Benadryl, unlike Ambien, you can actually get into a more natural state of sleep with CBD and THC. I will say, though, that THC can give you a little bit of a hangover. You can feel pretty sleepy for the first couple of hours of the day with that, whereas with Vital Sleep, that does not seem to be the case. All right, so if you do want to test out Vital Sleep, I don't often do this on the show, but I'm going to do it right now. Um, if you do want to test out Vital Sleep, I would love to hear your feedback. Um, it's normally $34.99 for what is a one to two month supply, depending on if you end up taking one at night or two. It's a capsule that you swallow. Um, all you've got to do is go to vitalitynutrition.com and type in uh, as a promo code or a discount code at the end in your shopping cart the word sleep, real simple, and you'll get five bucks off your vital sleep just by typing in sleep. Or if you want to shop with us directly, you can call us at 801-292-6662 or come by Vitality Nutrition and Bountiful. Mention this episode of Vitality Radio where I talked about vital sleep and we'll give you $5 off in store. Okay, I've got to wrap this thing up. I'm going to remind you that uh, you can, if you're listening on the radio, you got to check out the podcast. I do a couple of shows a week instead of just one. If you love the podcast, please share it. Uh, the more people getting this information, the better. And if you really love the podcast and you love the things that we talk about here on Vitality Radio, you got to join the listeners group on Facebook. It's free to join. It is an awesome group of amazing people that I am learning to love. They are so good. I'm so blessed to have such high-quality people listen to this show, including yourself. Thank you so much. I am Jared St. Clair, and this has been Vitality Radio. You've been listening to the Vitality Radio Podcast. Enjoy your week. In the meantime, Jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it. Vitality Radio is researched and written by Jared St. Clair. Our awesome music is by Brian Bob Young. Support Vitality Radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast source. Don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. The FDA has not evaluated this podcast. This podcast is provided with the understanding that information shared is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is not a substitute for care by a medical professional. Thank you.